Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Hi. Hi. I'm um I'm sitting on the balcony. It's absolutely freezing in um Coatesville up in in Tamaki. I have the privilege of being one of the across school reads leads for our Kahuiako and have spent the morning just walking around primary schools um my goodness the secondary sector can take so much from primary it is just inspiring going into a primary classroom and looking at how literacy and numeracy is being taught and um I mean, primary teachers, when, when secondary teachers are like, we're thinking about moving into interdisciplinary learning. It's a five-year thought. Primary t- teachers just must be rolling their eyes and thinking, my goodness gracious, we've been doing this all along. Told you so. They will be. And then, I mean, our interview today is with Claudia Rosas-Gomez and, of course, we were all about the English discipline at the, mm-hmm. in that conversation. So I guess there is a discussion to be had about the values of each thing. Such a purist, Chris. Such a purist. We were having a purist conversation, and because you were unwell, and I'm sorry you were unwell, but we didn't have you for balance. So the two of us just went down that purist track, which, which of course, it'll either really resonate with some people or really not, but I think it'll be a really worthwhile listen whichever way it goes. Yeah, I am... Um anticipate lots of words with more than three syllables, um, have a thesaurus at hand. I heard Claudia speak at the Enzate uh, conference. Gosh, she's amazing. Just so inspiring to listen to and so incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, so um, like everyone else, I, I look forward to, to hearing her thoughts about education and the world beyond. And she's joined the subject expert group for the development of the Level 2 English NCEA standards. So she's a good person to be talking to. Oh, that's she's fantastic. thinking about that stuff at the yeah, moment. Yeah, absolutely. And you're off to Texas. I'm off to Texas. That's a pretty extraordinary thing. A conference. And the, the theme of the conference, manliness. Yeah, pretty much. It sounds like you're joking, but it's actually really essentially what it is. Because I work in a boys' school and it's an international boys' schools coalition conference. And the theme of, of this action research project, which will be launching at the conference, is essentially the, the sort of contemporary masculinity. That'll be so interesting. I wonder how different a conference like that in 2022 would be from a conference like that, gosh, even 10 years ago. Well, I think that's that's what I'm hoping. Are you doing any aerobics tutorials while you're there or keeping <laughs> things highbrow? Oh, you see, you've got, you've, now you've planted an idea. I know you, you have a background in aerobics and that kind of feeds into a couple of bios. I tried to find some remnants of of your former self but but he's nowhere to be seen on the internet i was hoping there might be like a youtube tutorial and you're uh, there in your lecture you know doing great fine yeah no thing is that my fitness career was was in the vhs era yeah and so i've got the videos but they're safely tucked away i'll share you a photo philly it'll it'll Please. do everything you can, I've yeah. got a photo of myself at the age of 18 teaching aerobics. So I think that'll be. Ah, what a vision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what would 18-year-old Chris say if he saw um, you now? I don't know how old you are. Ah, uh, 51 now. I, um, Bloody hell. What would he say? I guess I, guess Who, I feel. What did you become? Yeah, what, you're a school teacher? What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Is that. Is this it? <laughs> Arms up. <laughs> exactly. All the, of all the possibilities, you're sitting in the classroom. <laughs> you, you chose this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. What would what would eighteen year old Philly say to you? Do you reckon? Uh, I don't know. Um, she'd probably be pretty stoked that I'd figured out how to use a hair straightener. I think. Um, well, you use it so well, I thought your hair was straight, so that's pretty No, nice. no, very yeah. curly, very, very curly. I don't know, actually. I feel like I was such a twit at 18 years old. I don't trust anything that my 18-year-old self would would, would say or think about anything. Um, but, you know, probably something pretty self-deprecating. Yeah, I think I, – I actually think I'd be proud of me at that age, thinking mm. – yeah, so if I'm being honest rather than silly, yeah. I, oh, 
I think I think I'd be proud to think that I could be a teacher. Of course, you know, when I was eighteen, it wasn't legal for gay people to be teachers, so it wasn't on my I radar. I thought you were going to say it wasn't legal for eighteen-year-olds to be teachers. <laughs> not like, no, not that either. I think that still holds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there were some changes that need to happen in society first, but um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the same. I think I'd be. I think I'd be proud. Um, proud of my family, proud of my relationships that I have with young people and the impact that you get to have on, on other people's lives. We just have such a privileged position, so I'd like to think that I'd, I would be proud of the those relationships and the influence you get to have. I agree, and I think I understood the importance of the institution of teaching, so it would have considered it to be important, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. We're both proud of our future selves. So proud. Yeah. Who knows what the future holds for us? Yeah. Well, I'm actually, I can say that I've got the idea that I will finish my career teaching. I think this is my thing. I've settled in that. Proud of that. Very happy about it now. So I guess Mm. if I look at my, you know, 65-year-old self, I can see that slightly grayer, slightly less bouncy guy still standing in a classroom working with students and having a a brilliant time at it. I, don't, I can't see myself doing anything else. I think when I first started teaching, I used to feel quite anxious that I would be, um, and this is, this is just me, but I was worried that I'd be a classroom teacher in the same school for, for 35 years. And um, I was worried that I hadn't challenged myself to explore professional life outside of something that was already very familiar. My first yeah. school that I taught at was also my old secondary school. So I went I've basically never left school mm-hmm. um, and I, I felt a tremendous amount of self-doubt about that. But being so, I don't know, having experience now and and also being in positions of various positions of leadership and seeing that a career in education doesn't mean that you just have to be in a classroom for so many years. It's, it, there's, there's so much variety and opportunity. I cannot see myself moving outside of education. But we could have you, I could be working in my classroom happily whilst you're the Minister of Education. Oh, yeah. Right. So it's lovely to see you in a primary school. There's always shade cloth in a primary school and you're under one now. So that's very characteristic. And I hear you've been sick. So I'm sorry to hear that. We are doing amazing things as teachers through being quite ill aren't we? Oh, so I've never been so unwell in my whole life. Mm. Everyone get your flu jab. Yeah, I, I was yeah. absolutely taken down whole week off work, which I've never done before. And I don't say that to be a martyr. Clawing my way out of the, the back end of that with a four-year-old has, has been interesting. Oh, uh, but yeah, you'll hear it in my voice, but slowly getting there. Yeah, well, take care. Take care, everyone out there. And hopefully you'll enjoy this really great conversation with Claudia Rosas Gomez. Kakiti. Welcome to Claudia Rosas Gomez, who we're so grateful to have on this very kind of stormy winter's night to talk to us to some extent about herself, but also about some really interesting thinking that she's been doing in relation to the teaching of English in New Zealand. Some of this is based in her doctoral research, which I'll ask her to explain in much better detail than I ever could, but some of it's also based in personal experience. So we're quite keen, Claudia, to ask some questions about how you got to where you are today. Thanks, Chris. Um, Thank you for the opportunity, and it's lovely to be here. And I'm so pleased that you mentioned um, the weather. It's it's moody and dramatic um, and just perfect for English teachers, I think. In terms of how how I got here, I guess that there are two strands, really. Um, One one is an education journey, and and one is a a more literal migrant um, or refugee journey, I should say. And if I start with the education one, which is what I call a, a backwards journey into teaching, um, because I, I went into university in 1989 was my first year, and I did a BA, uh, and I meant to do a BA, and then do an educational psychology, and I thought I could, you know, change the world one person at a time, and that the way to change the world was to change individuals. But by the time I got to the end of the BA, I I stayed back and I did an MA. 
And I did an MA because I wanted to be a primary school teacher and I didn't, I didn't get in. <laughs> I, I went to Auckland College of Education and I got rejected um, and I was put on a waiting list and I, and I was a bit arrogant about that. So I decided to do an MA instead. But I, I at that point, had swapped over to the dark side of, of sociology of education. And my perspective had changed in, in thinking that the way to change the world was to change individuals from a sociological perspective, the way to change the world was actually to change the structures. And once I got to that point, I guess it felt really important to, to test the theory. Uh, you know, were the sociologists right with their explanations and their theories about who does well at school and who doesn't? So at that point, I, I, I retried um, to get into Auckland College of Education. And at the time, the University of Auckland was offering um, pre-service teacher education. So, and in the end, I opted for the U, the University of Auckland. Can I ask before you go on about those first years in the actual secondary teaching, in the light of all the thinking, like yeah. what kind of new graduate teacher did that make you? It made me a very radical teacher because I was coming from um, sort of a very critical, socially critical perspective. My thinking had been informed by by radical educators like Paulo Freire, who, you know, said education can be domesticating or it can be liberating. And I went back to my old high school in, in Mangere East, which the demographics had changed really drastically from when I had been a student there. That first year was, you know, I'm going to change the world. Um, and I was sort of somewhere between, I don't know, Che Guevara and Robin Williams and Dead Poet Society <laughs> in my as, head. As we all are in our heads. As we all are um, yeah. in our heads. But we were talking earlier about, you know, the importance of some, sometimes just being kind of falling over in public. And I remember writing a letter to Dr. Nairi Hoban, who, who was the, the person who turned me into a secondary English teacher. And I, I wrote her a long letter and I remember writing in that letter and saying that I thought that I had gone into teaching, you know, to change young people's lives. And I wasn't sure if I had changed anybody's lives, but what I knew beyond a doubt was that my students had changed me. And it was, you know, it was this intense feeling in those first couple of years of being completely pulled apart by my students when I got there in the morning and then being put back together by the time the bell went in the afternoon. And, and I really felt I knew less about education when I left in the afternoon um, than when I had arrived in the morning. And you might think that that's that's a terrible thing, but that was actually what was what has remained so compelling and seductive, I think, about education for me is that it's it's complicated. You know, I like dwelling in the complicatedness of it all and holding the tension. That's that's a really nice place to be. It's quite an interesting blend, isn't it, of idealism and structure and pragmatism. It's fascinating where we, we kind of choose to place ourselves on those intersecting continua, perhaps. And so you did that early life teaching with quite a lot of sociological foundation and a lot of ideology sitting behind it. I'd like to perhaps just say, because I feel it's important to say that your humility ensures that you don't suggest that you had an impact on people. But I'd like to suggest at least that your undoing and remaking in the eyes of students would have been profound for them. Seeing a person go through that process in front of them every day, as much as anything else would have changed their lives. So then what happened? How did, how did things go from there? I was there for about five or six years. And then I, I had a child and, and, had a, <laughs> and then I had a feminist existentialist crisis because then I decided that actually I wanted to be involved in the details of Louis's life. I'd loved being a mother. Well, I still love being a mother, but those early years were just really important. So, so I went part-time. And what that meant is that then there was an opportunity to go back to the former School of Education at the University of Auckland and to work on the graduate secondary diploma, because this time there were new questions to be asked and new things to think about. The theory was grounded in, in real life, you know, being able to say I was in a school and I, I was in a real life classroom and I had real life students. So how was your thinking affected by that? It made me realise that, that the sociologists were mostly right, but that 
it's probably more complicated. And that, that, that interplay, as you say, between structure and, and agency is 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 quite complicated and more thinking needed to be done. And of course, the context of South Auckland is not the same as the context of the sociologists who were writing in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s even outside of New Zealand. So there was also that that layer of complexity of, of South Auckland and, you know, Tamaki Makoto and Aotearoa and, and so on. What's your work now? I work mostly in pre-service teacher education. I teach in the in the courses that are sort of broad and, and generic in the graduate diploma of, of teaching. And so I'm not very practical, Chris. I need to I need to put that up front straight away. I'm not practical. I'm sort of, I do the, the courses that people go, oh my God, you know, how will this help me on a Friday afternoon with a year 10 class that's bouncing off the walls? Sometimes the ideology is the only thing that helps at that time. It's the only thing that gets you through. Most of my teaching really is, is sort of trying to engage students with thinking about the relationship between education and society and the idea of, of teachers as intellectuals, teachers as curriculum workers, as education workers is a, is a really strong idea and desire, I suppose, on, on my behalf and my, my colleagues who, who teach on these courses. As opposed to uh, what else, perhaps instruments of the state or some kind of neoliberal agenda? Like, what do you mean? I always say to students, we've got, we can have a, a narrow conception of teaching, which is generally captured by ideas of effective pedagogy um, and practice, particularly practice, I think, that kind of that practice-based identity. And, and practice is really important. I'm certainly not against practice. There are better ways to be a teacher and we can know lots of those ways. So I wouldn't diminish the importance of practice at all. But that's, to me, that's quite a narrow conception of teaching. A much broader conception of teaching is a conception of teaching that sees teachers as intellectuals and who are intellectually engaged. Because the thing is that even the practices that make the most sense to us right now are all embedded in, in much deeper meanings and questions about the purposes of education and about what teaching is and what learning is and so on. That's right. The practice is probably more about creating an environment where the rest of the more important stuff can happen, isn't it? Is it it's about sustaining the ability to create that environment. But then what that environment is filled with it's the intellectual work of a teacher. Like, what am I going to use this very precious time that I've invested all these yeah. skills yeah. in creating? What am I going to do with this? And how am I going to shape it? And why am I shaping it the way I am? And to what end? Are those questions definitely, is that what you mean? Those sorts of questions. But even just thinking about the sorts of, for example, the NCA, the New Zealand curriculum, you know, these these things are a product of an historical moment. So it's even being able to see how education policy or what counts as effective practice, how these things are always a product of an historical moment and and to understand what are the broader meanings at stake. I think that's what it is. It's, there's always a broader meaning at stake. It always shocks me to discover this, but when I'm working with my colleagues, I discover that most of them, were assessed using NCEA because they're that young. And, and I know that actually shouldn't shock me, but for some reason it does. And so if that was the system that they were educated within, how are they going to think critically about the moment that it arose from? Could you share some thoughts about what that moment looked like and how it came about, just for people's information? Yes, I think so. I guess, so one of the things that we look at is is curriculum in our courses. And so we, we would for example, focus on transnational policy. And we would look at the way we would situate the New Zealand curriculum, for example, or the NCA in a much broader global moment in education. And we would think about how that moment is connected to the political economy, how it's connected to a social and historical moment in, in the world or in the West in this case. So for example, the, the turn to competencies is a really significant thing, but it's it's not something that we made up in New Zealand. It's something that's very much in keeping with transnational policy. And it's connected to the idea that to have a competitive economy, we need people with the right sorts of attitudes and the right sorts of values. So when you've got a curriculum document with, that the focus is on competencies and is a little bit 
more vague about knowledge that's that's a thing like that's a real thing to think about in education this you know this shift um, is really important we talk for example in the curriculum much more about community in fact in general there's been a shift to talking about community much more so than society now that might seem like oh well it's just semantics it's a word but it's actually a really deep shift in how we are thinking about the purposes of education. So that's that's sort of what we try to encourage students to do. And it's not, you know, it's not saying love the curriculum, hate the curriculum. It's just saying understand the context and understand those bigger meanings that are that are contained within the ideas. So understand this shift towards attitudes and values, potentially at the expense. Of knowledge. Because I've essentially only been an English teacher for quite a long time, I guess I'm thinking practically, but before you can develop a set of values or have an attitude, perhaps you have to have some experience yeah. and our curriculum can be a vehicle for young people to experience things so that they can start to form those dispositions. People say, oh, we need critical thinking, we need critical thinking, but it's like Critical thinking about what? I would argue you would need a domain base or a knowledge base in order to um, in order to do that. In fact, doesn't that make English wonderful because it's just such a rich knowledge base against which we can throw ourselves? I mean, so many things Absolutely. to learn and ways to learn within our subject. But I guess that's where we can also go astray. I mean, that's what your research was looking into is where we might be going astray as a result of some of these structures? I guess what I was looking at primarily in the research was looking at the prevalence of having choice and flexibility built into our both our curriculum and our assessment framework. And, and choice and flexibility are things that, can't, that are difficult to argue against because they, they feel good. And they feel good, I think, for lots of us who would consider, you know, we consider ourselves as sort of progressive teachers, which means we tend to be student-centred. We want to be responsive um, towards the interests that our students bring to the classroom and so on. Um, we're interested in notions of student voice and student agency. So choice and flexibility really plays into those progressive desires that I, I think most of us probably have, particularly as English teachers. So it was one of those things that I that I wanted to look at because it, it, it feels so good and right and it helps us to think of ourselves as good and right teachers because we're being the responsive teacher. But if you had a look at the data, and I guess I saw that in the last couple of years when I was teaching, um, if you sort of have a look at the data in terms of who's doing what, and then you start to see a pattern forming in relation to decile, which then, of course, you know, is intersects with ethnicity in this country, um, then you start to think like a sociologist because you're looking at the pattern and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, you know, why is it that these kids are being excluded from certain forms of knowledge? And so that made me think, well, maybe there are limitations to choice and flexibility. There are some things that you tend not to give young people autonomy over. And some of those things are quite fundamental, like you don't necessarily have them choose their own diet. And so if they're not actually particularly well equipped to make good decisions about what they eat, then I'm not so sure that they're either in a great position to choose what they read. There are things that we have knowledge about that I think where our intervention is of value. And there are still ways of enabling students' agency without abandoning all of that richness that we can bring with our expertise, isn't there? Yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's that delicate balance and, and holding the tension and never quite resolving it completely, but instead sort of being aware that there's always that push and pull between, between the student and between what the teacher gets to decide. To look at the counter of that, I spent some years teaching in the UK where the uh, syllabus prescribes the texts that students read and I found myself in central London teaching an incredibly diverse group of students, great expectations yes. and teaching great expectations in central London where it's set is pretty magical. But there was also that having, you know, grown up as a teacher in New Zealand, there was also that difficulty at looking at that sea of multi-ethnic yep. faces and presenting this very sort of English and Eurocentric yep. perception of the world to them and thinking, well, I don't need you 
your tastes to be catered to, but how about your identity and your history and culture? Where, where's that being supported or reinforced or enabled or engaged with? What are your thoughts yeah. on that? I, well, I think those are all really important questions, and I certainly wouldn't say that we shouldn't worry about those questions. You know, on the one hand, you've got the, the politics of curriculum. Curriculum is deeply political. It is about legitimizing knowledge by its inclusion in the curriculum and, you know, at the same time, delegitimizing other forms of knowledge by its exclusion. And so I, I don't think we should we should ever really stray from asking, posing those sorts of questions that, that consider that political element um, and, and the power relationships that are involved in deciding what goes in and what goes out of the curriculum. However, um, I think that the strive to, to, to solely be responsive to the students in front of us can therefore mean that what is guiding the choices that we make is limited to student interest. And I think that if that's all it becomes, if that's all that English becomes, then I, I, that can become problematic because then education is not extending students beyond their ken. What it's doing is, is holding up a mirror to them and reflecting their realities back at them. And, it sh and education should do that to some extent, but I don't think that's all that education should be. I often say to younger teachers I work with that you don't know yet and they don't know yet what they're interested in until you've shown them something really interesting. We've got at least some form of access to a story or an experience or an insight or a way of seeing in the world that they don't. And what more exciting way to use our collective time than to introduce them yeah. to that. But then again, I'm talking in that way because my education was like that. There's a difference, though, isn't there, between relevance or that notion of relevance that talks about us producing material that reflects the lives of the students or that's familiar to them or arises from their life, and that you're calling it political, and I guess it is. I hadn't really thought it was politics, but that notion of being culturally responsive. I mean, one of the things that the kind of notion of this long-held view on the English canon excludes is mataranga Māori and different, you know, indigenous ways of seeing and knowing and, 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 and literature and the forms of literature that have come through. So that would be seen on the progressive side, but it's also just as ancient, isn't it? We just don't have the same access to it. I, yeah, I guess so. And I, and I think, I mean, I think the question of what, what would constitute a New Zealand literary canon is a, is a really interesting question and, and one that, Hopefully, you know, we might be able to make time to have a conversation about that. There's been this thing about dead white men. <laughs> I think we should study the, the dead white men, but I, I don't think that can be all that we study. It's, it's good to question the canon in that sense, because you can always read against the text. You can always bring a critical voice and a, and a critical eye to the text. So you can always have one of those texts like Dickens, I suppose, and read against the text and bring a critical eye to it. At the same time, you know, there's a reason why we still read Dickens, <laughs> you know, and why we should still read Dickens. I keep, I keep thinking at the moment, for example, about the increasing inequality in our society and the wealth gap in New Zealand. And I can almost see us going back to, to a Dickensian sort of Victorian moment of, of the landed gentry and the not landed gentry and, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots. And so, as you say, I mean, the, the writing is spectacular. And so there's, there's the writing, but there is the social element and there is, you know, there is a way to bridge something that was written a long time ago that would resonate socially with you know where we find ourselves as a nation um, today. As you introduce this conversation, it is complicated, but we're also at a new moment in time because the NCEA assessment scheme is being revised. And I understand that you've just arrived onto the subject expert group for that. I have, yes. I um, it's for the for NCA level two, and yes, I mean we're at a moment of. I keep coming back to this because to, it's. I've heard it mentioned. I've gone to a couple of seminars around the curriculum refresh in particular, and the the words that are used are nothing left to chance. 
And then I saw it kind of written, officially written down in the policy, <laughs> nothing left to chance. And it was horrifying. It was, you know, like, how do we end up in the moment that we have to say, hang on, guys, we can't leave things to chance. And that is a product of that level of choice and flexibility. And I think it's to, to be really fair to the, to the people who've worked on the curriculum and absolutely to our colleagues in schools. I believe it to be an unintended consequence. And the consequence is not just teachers going, I'm going to be responsive. It's not just tied to those sorts of things. We've got to, again, be if we're thinking sociologically and we think to that broader context, the last few decades have, have brought about increased competition between schools. In fact, that was that was the whole revolution in education from the mid-80s or the late 80s onwards was this idea that, you know, education and schools shouldn't, why shouldn't they be held accountable in the same way that other businesses and so on um, and other aspects of life are held accountable? And so this notions of consumer choice, you know, the idea that competition would naturally force schools to, to, to be better and so on. Teachers are also operating in that context. So if you are operating in a context of high visibility, where everybody knows your results and you're ranked and there's league tables and so on, and particularly, I think, for English departments, and there's, there's certainly overseas research that, that clearly shows that maths and English departments are the most sort of exposed and at risk departments because you've got literacy and numeracy often, you know, tied up with those things. So in that context, that's going to shape choice and flexibility in a particular way. You know, if you can mitigate exposure, if you can mitigate a whole, you know, um, unpleasant results that you don't want, then you then you're going to choose particular achievement standards and so on. Or you might. You don't have to. I mean, I think one of the things that I wanted to prove in going to the UK into a system where those accountability measures are amplified by an exponential amount. One of the things that I did was enter into a school that was considered to be underperforming take over an English department and take a wholehearted approach where we insisted on reading the whole of great expectations and not the abridged version, et cetera, et cetera, and like embraced it for the experience of it rather than because it was a means of achieving a particular level of result. And of course, as English teachers will all know, the results obviously came because the students loved the learning. And so I don't think the uh, kind of Principles are incompatible, but I, and I do think that it's important that we ask the question of our colleagues, how is it that you came to think that this easier option that you're thinking you're offering, which you know, I know you're doing with a good heart, you're doing it in order to provide students with access to a qualification that you know is important to them. But if they're not actually learning things along the way that are important for their future, then aren't you letting them down? Can't we ask each other that? <laughs> That's an actual question that I did ask teachers that I interviewed, because I had come out of, of you know, teaching in a low decile school where I wasn't making those sorts of choices, but I, I really acutely understood what it was like to be in that context. So I have a really big heart for, you know, teachers in low decile schools. And so I, I did ask those sorts of questions. And, it, and it, again, the responses tended to come back to notions of teaching for equity and wanting to be responsive, wanting to meet the students where they're at. So, so they were tied to good reasons. Um, and then certainly not good reasons that we want to get rid of. We just want to think about the consequences and, you know, what does it mean and, what kind of knowledge is, is that that's cognitively demanding that we want all students to have access to? And but interestingly enough, what I what I found because I interviewed teachers from high and low decile schools, there were a number of teachers in low decile schools who, who who were quite adamant that even if the results were weren't fantastic, they would not exclude students from complex achievement standards. So in fact, you know, a number of our colleagues in low decile schools are actually working really hard and putting themselves at risk, if I can sort of use that emotive language, um, of, of bad results yeah. or, or not as good results, and, but, you know, wanting to do the right thing by students. And you've um, published some fairly devastating statistics that suggest at a kind of population level, access to those more complex standards is limited in the lower decile schools. It's 
in black and yeah, white, isn't it? Yeah, but I'm I'm I remain hesitant, and I when I when I wrote my thesis, I was really clear, and I was clear with my supervisors and everybody that this was not a teacher bashing exercise. I I was determined not to locate the problem with the teachers. And we can locate the problem with the teachers, or we can locate them with the students, and I didn't want to do either. I want to be the strongest advocate I can for teachers. This is a NZATE podcast. We're speaking for teachers here, but I consider this conversation where we robustly defend the learning of complex texts, for example, or 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 the engagement with the uh, canon in literature as being a supportive statement to make to English teachers, because I think that most teachers want to hear this. And I think they want to hear people in positions of influence saying these things so that they know that in their classes that when they're valiantly attempting to introduce this to a group of students who haven't encountered it before, that they understand that that is the right thing to do and that it is important and of value beyond the achievement standard they're currently working towards. Absolutely. Chris, and thank you for for saying that. You're absolutely right. And it's, again, as I say, I've attended a couple of workshops with the curriculum um, refresh. And alongside the nothing left to chance, um, one of the things that that has come out of it is that community. So parents, whanau, um, in low decile communities, in diverse populations are saying we want our students to do exams why aren't they doing exams so the message is coming from everywhere you also have talked and explained with a a lot of clarity the problematic nature of autonomy matched up with high levels of accountability and how that that can distort people's practice because of the uh, pressure that they're under to deliver a certain performance and at the same time being given a great amount of choice as to how they may deliver that. And so the changes that are coming through with the NCEA for English are actually reducing choice, aren't they? We're looking now at NCEA standards that are going to be prescribed and delivered consistently in all the classrooms. So that I guess that's their manifestation of nothing left to chance and it would be I mean it would be interesting to talk to teachers about how they they feel about losing some of of that autonomy or if they see it as losing um, a level of autonomy or not I wonder if after having had all of this freedom and us seeing the pitfalls in the freedom we might embrace the restriction a little bit because it will help us to mitigate some of those problems that have emerged and I think once you've had freedom, it's quite hard to go back. So I suspect, especially with English teachers, that we'll find our way to make material in the classroom, the individual, the individuality that's needed in order for students to feel as if they're acknowledged in the process. Like the new NCEA doesn't eliminate choice. It just reduces it, doesn't it? I think what you're pointing to when you're talking about making materials is, is a really important distinction between curriculum and pedagogy. And so I guess so far we've sort of talked about freedom, capital F, or autonomy, capital A, as an encompassing thing. But actually there are lots of different freedoms and little freedoms in the classroom. And and for pedagogy, I mean, that that remains. And that, that importance of, of that um, making those sorts of pedagogical decisions about how you teach the what, uh, you know, that remains. And another thing, another distinction that I think it's important we keep reaffirming is that an assessment tool isn't a curriculum. And so, you know, we have NCEA, but we also have all the other hours in the day. And although some teachers will be rolling their eyes at my saying that because they don't feel like they have any other hours in the day, but in reality, there's a whole lot of teaching that goes on, isn't there, that, that emerges from a curriculum that hasn't actually changed, that still allows us to do the things that we believe are important for our students. Yeah, and hopefully the students will come to see it as important as well, Chris. So with the um, NCEA changes, if we could talk just a little bit about the nitty-gritty, we've got a bit of information because the trial's happening with the Level 1 achievement standards in a few schools and they've published the draft standards. And one of the things that has sort of disappeared, not entirely, but largely disappeared from the assessment scheme is the study of extended written texts. Like it's very much an optional thing as far as assessment is concerned at level one. So that would sort of go against some of your thoughts. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've got quite strong ideas about students 
you know, being able to engage with complex text. And for example, you, you mentioned that you taught Great Expectations, the actual text, not the abridged text. And we know that, that students need to be exposed to complexity. They need to be exposed to, to a complex vocabulary and so on. And, and it reminds when I when I was teaching um, year 12 and I, I would wait all year to do Frankenstein. Anyone who knows me knows I'm obsessed with the novel. And I would use an abridged text because it was I knew that students would read it and it was accessible. And I remember I had, we had a um, resource teacher of learning and behaviour and she came in to do an observation and, and you know, she said, look, all, all good, all fine, but when, it, when do they get exposed to the complex, the actual text? When, how will they be able to have, a, you know, a broader vocabulary and so on if all you give them is this? You know, that was a really important um, conversation, like professional learning conversation for me. And the students would feel a sense of accomplishment once they started to access the original text, wouldn't they? I mean, it actually really is quite, it's a steam building. In fact, we were talking with colleagues today about engagement, student engagement. And, you know, we were, we were saying our success is highly motivating. Success is engaging. So if students are coming to a complex text and they're figuring it out, that's really highly motivating. Yeah. What it comes back to again is that pedagogy is the teacher making, you know, scaffolding and making complexity accessible to students. And that means we have to give teachers time. We have to actually give them permission, don't we? I mean, we're actually allowed to, but people think they're not allowed to eliminate some of those. I mean, I would be very happy if the last time ever in the history of humanity would be the this time when I say the phrase static image. Like, <laughs> like if that if that phrase were eliminated <laughs> from our vocabulary from this moment forward, I would be thrilled. It's not even a thing. I don't have a problem with visual language, but this sort of this these manufactured exercises, we could we could clear the curriculum of those and spend time with literature, couldn't we? And I like you, I I initially I kind of I kind of defended the the visual language and even you know something like Shakespeare for example it's not Shakespeare's not a novel just while you're while we're talking about it Frankenstein why is it one of your loves I did it I did a paper on Byron and romanticism with Alex Calder at the University of Auckland and it was an it was an old coral hall which is has got these well probably not now but when I did it old uncomfortable seats and it was just this rickety old lecture theater and yet for those you know, two sessions a week, I was I was in the most comfortable place um, learning about, you know, Byron and Romanticism and the Romantic poets. And I think with what happened with me is, you know, I, I had an old, I had that kind of popular understanding of Frankenstein. I hadn't read it until I, I did that paper and it was always, you know, the monster Frankenstein and that sort of Hollywood construction of it. I remember thinking, wow, you know, a woman wrote a horror story. And then I, I read the actual novel, which was really different to what I'd seen um, on TV or in comics, etc. And it was just this profoundly human story. And I, I her empathy for the creature, um, and I know the creature, you know, kills lots of people and does lots of bad things, but the, the, her empathy for the creature I found really stirring. It's also quite sociological, her empathy. Well, it was. One, one of the things that actually got me about the novel is, is how there's almost an inverse journey between Victor Frankenstein and the creature and how Victor goes from a loving community, but through his pursuit of knowledge, he ends up alone, not quite alone because people actually care for him forever, but he loses that community and the creature begins life alone. And in his search for knowledge, his human knowledge, you know, that he sort of studies like a scientist, mm. language, poetry, songs, and so on, that is humanizing um, for him and, and it leads him to desire community. He doesn't get it, which is the great tragedy of the novel. The great tragedy of the novel, yeah. He doesn't, you know, his humanity is denied and he never gets community. But it was that sort of the, you know, that pursuit of science versus the pursuit of, you know, I don't know, the humanities or poetry, literature, songs, you know, sort of human 
language. Which is the romance and, poets, isn't it? All, exactly, all through and exactly. through, that kind of response to the Enlightenment. And my year 13 class are studying Frankenstein, and we've put it alongside uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I'm trying to make nice. the case for how the the AI as yep. as an as a kind of contemporary version of the Frankenstein monster oh, and, and and see what they can make of that. And so and you know like you put that sort of thing in front of a group of students and my goodness they certainly see things I didn't see, that's for sure. But Chris see that's exactly that's exactly what I mean about that the stuff that's cognitively demanding for students. And that's you know, that's quite a thing, putting two different texts, I mean, one's, one's a film, one's a novel, two completely different time periods. Both time periods are, are not contemporary, right, to, to the young people. Um, and yet you're asking them to make a connection between two quite, you know, in some ways different texts. But you're saying find find what's similar about them. That's that's what I mean about, you know, let's, let's not, let's, Let's have these rich opportunities for all students. And I think that's the thing about the dead white men. I think my argument in favour of it has to do with allowing everybody to join a conversation, an important conversation, because the conversation yeah. about the technology that man produces using that kind of, you know, 19th century configuration or or it's, it's a conversation for now. Like we're actually facing artificial intelligence pretty much tomorrow <laughs> and we're going to have to make some pretty complex moral decisions around that and I think the, this literature allows them to have a meaningful engagement with that conversation. Personally I'm very pleased that you're on the subject expert group and I think your voice is going to be really useful in holding true to some of this mission but there will be people who really disagree. I guess the thing with both the refresh and the NCA change package is that because of because of the sorts of curricula that we've seen throughout you know sort of OECD countries and so on there is also a shift back towards knowledge so there's sort of nothing left to chance that we might talk about here you know it has its own shape in the new Australian curriculum it has its own shape in mm. the UK and so on um, and I and I guess in the context of of subject English my concern would be that this this move back towards knowledge is also captured by a particular way of thinking, which, to my view, does not capture all that subject English is. So I think that the the, the knowledge question for English is really complicated. I don't think it's straightforward like it's, it might be maybe in science. English contains, or, or for example, experience and imagination, wonder. And those those sorts of things are really difficult to capture, and, and they're not science at all. They're like the opposite in some ways. And so I would want to see those elements, I think, in English. Enabled. Enabled. A thought I have is that some of that wonder comes about as a result of experience experimenting with new skills and that's one of the things that we can do is help young people to become skillful in language because yes. if they stay become excited about language and knowledgeable about it then they can start experimenting and exploring it as a form of self-expression but yes. to be expressive of self they actually have to be skillful and that's english's job Part of, part of our many aspects of our job, but it's English's job not just to expose them to really expressive and powerful and heartfelt text, but also to give them sovereignty over language so that they can also do that themselves. And a lot of the knowledge conversation at the moment is, is you know, can be captured by notions of powerful knowledge and it's, it's quite a scientific view of knowledge. Mm. And I just don't think that English is a science <laughs> But the answer to complex content is not not to teach it. <laughs> it's to teach it more and to teach it better. Thank you so much for all this time and this conversation. We always have a question we like to ask at the end, which is, what advice do you have for teachers? As aside from my standard, be kind to young people. And if you can't be kind to them anymore, go and do something else and then come back when you can be. You know, I, I keep coming back and to this idea of complex, cognitively demanding work and complex texts. And I think one thing that has become really clear to me that I keep thinking, you know, if I went back into the classroom, if I was going to be a teacher again, what what's one thing that I would do that was different? And I 
come back to that unfamiliar text achievement standard, which I know can spook some teachers or, or potentially some students. And I think what I would do is I, I would commit from year nine, I, I would do an unfamiliar text a week. I would take a poem or a, or a piece of, of beautiful text, you know, of really rich, beautiful language, and I would make it a thing in my classroom that this is a thing that we do once a week. Claudia, just before we finish tonight's conversation, I thought I'd loop back and offer you the chance to go back to that second branch of your story that also informs everything that you think about the teaching of English. And there is the other journey, and that's just, you know, the real-life journey of arriving in New Zealand um, as, as a young refugee um, when I was six years old. And I mentioned that because I guess my own concerns and my own journey in secondary English and, and the sorts of the research and the thinking and the writing that I'm interested in is, to, to some degree, is informed by that experience of having arrived in a country without a word, word of English um, as a young child. So it was not quite, you know, it's pretty easy to pick up the language when you're young, but still, that was a thing. But having had gone through an education system in which I got to do the same as all of my peers, and no one assumed ever, you know, that that because of my background, um, or the house that I lived in, or my parents who spoke with an accent and so on, that that I should have a different kind of curriculum. And that so that sort of is both a personal and political commitment, I suppose, <laughs> um, to my work. And it's and it's so it's kind of a, a, also a message, I suppose, to, to go out there to teachers that, you know, everyone it's it's about access. And I, I to me it makes me sad really, when people think that because someone is of a certain background, you know, they're going to struggle or they should be excluded in some way from, you know, rich and complex um, learning. So just adding that part there as as sort of the other side of the journey, um, which is a bit more personal, but yeah, sort of standing in solidarity with all the other young people in schools who were not born in this country um, and whose parents will have you know this the same goals and dreams that my parents had for me um and to you know to kind of for teachers to be enablers of the of those dreams um rather than gatekeepers so yeah so that they can then come and be part of our subject expert group absolutely exactly be the english teachers of tomorrow and then us and then our students will have you know will have a teaching body who are representative of our society Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Chris. You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz. 